On June 23, 1985, at precisely 7.14, Flight Air India 182 disappeared from radar screens at the Air Control Tower in Shannon, Ireland. It had been flying at an altitude of 31,000 feet. Initially hoped to be a glitch by air traffic controllers who had spoken to the plane only moments previously, a quick check by two other planes flying nearby revealed the horrifying truth. The plane was gone. A bomb, consisting of a Sanyo stereo, dynamite, and various other pieces, exploded from cargo hold 52, which was found in the rear left of the plane. Within seconds of detonation, the force caused large cracks to form and the Boeing 747, 329 souls, and over 500 pieces of luggage tumbled to the sea far below. The force of being ejected from the plane meant that in many cases clothes were ripped away from bodies. Nearly all the victims suffered catastrophic damage both from the initial blast and from hitting the water below. Many of the rescuers, most of whom had no preparation in disaster recovery, came upon the scene expecting a rescue operation, and instead found themselves facing a horror from which many have never been able to fully recover. As news spread around the world and hundreds of loved ones learned the devastating news, one question rang louder than the rest. Why? As the devastating answer became clear, that question was replaced with one to which no clear answer has yet been found. How was this allowed to happen? This is the story of the worst terrorist attack in Canadian history and the disaster surrounding it. I have known about the Air India disaster for quite a few years now. It's always been on my radar, no pun intended, as, you know, a pretty terrible terrorist attack, something that affected a heck of a lot of Canadians. And so I was really surprised to learn this past June that Angus Reid held a survey and over 85% of Canadians have never heard about this. We've got to figure out why. And to do that, we have to go all the way back to 1984. In the Indian state of Punjab, tensions between the Hindu majority and Sikhs had been simmering for years. After back-and-forth violence between them, on June 3rd, the Prime Minister of India, Indira Gandhi, ordered Operation Blue Star. This decision saw hundreds of troops surround the Golden Temple of Amritsar, considered to be the holiest site in Sikhism. The hope was to swiftly remove the leader of the Khalistan movement, which was a Sikh separatist movement hoping to gain a new country for themselves where they could be the majority, which would be named Khalistan. That leader was named Jarnail Singh Brar. After a bloody assault, the Indian army took control. While official figures and scholars remain unsure of the exact number killed, the victims were anywhere between hundreds to over a thousand. Jarnail himself was murdered, leaving him to be viewed as a martyr by many Sikh extremists around the world. One of these extremists who had fled India was a man named Talwinder Singh Parmar. He had left India in the 1970s, eventually settling in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. There, he became a leader of the Babar Khalsa movement, which was a militant organization dedicated to creating an independent Khalistan. Among this group, he was well-respected, often invited to give talks at other temples across Canada. 
Now, Parmar's living in Canada was a source of diplomatic tension between Canada and India. As India considered him to be a terrorist, they wanted him extradited back to be held on charges related to the killing of two Punjab police officers. However, using clever legalese tactics involving Commonwealth countries, Canada managed to keep Parmar safely within their borders. This did not mean that Parmar was not under suspicion. But here's where we come to one of the holes that enabled this bombing to slip through investigators' notice. Following reports of illegal activities by the RCMP Security Service during the 1970s, the McDonald Commission reported the recommendation that intelligence work should be separated from police work. Thus, on July 16th of 1984, the Canadian Securities Intelligence Service was born. The new mandate of CSIS? Quote, CSIS does not collect evidence. CSIS were meant to only gather intelligence that was not meant to be shown in a court of law. As such, many common practices within CSIS were not questioned. And trust me, there will be many of those that we'll look at a little later on. Once CSIS had been established, information about Babar Khalsa began flowing in from various informants. In August 1984, only a month after CSIS was created, a man named Jerry Boudreau reported to authorities that Parmar had shown him a suitcase full of cash in the hopes of getting Jerry to put a bomb on the plane. Boudreau, who was a known criminal, claimed that bombing a plane was too much. His evidence was dismissed as unreliable. A month later, in September 1984, a man named Harmail Singh Johal also went to CSIS and the RCMP. In an effort to get his charges of theft and fraud reduced, he told investigators of a plot to bomb Flight 182. His evidence was also dismissed as unreliable. By November of 1984, the Drugs Division of the Vancouver RCMP were told by yet another informant that Babar Khalsa had approached him with cash to go to Montreal and gain access to the Air India security area, as well as hoping that this person would be able to get bomb materials. The Vancouver Drug Squad passed this information on to the Montreal Drug Squad. Nothing further happened. Additionally, in November of 1984, Vancouver police became aware of an aborted plot to bomb Flight 182. This information was forwarded to both CSIS and the RCMP, but did not seem to go anywhere. November had seen a sharp uptick in activity from Babar Khalsa. Remember Indira Gandhi who ordered the attack on the Golden Temple? Well, on October 31st, she was murdered by her Sikh bodyguards. Her son takes over. In retaliation, hundreds of Sikhs are murdered throughout India. This prompts Babar Khalsa and particularly Parmar to begin demanding violence and death against Hindus. CSIS learns about this and begins to push to have surveillance done on Parmar. It will take months for clearance to be given. The Sikh moderate, Ujjal Dev Dosanj, spoke out against the growing violence among Sikh extremists. For this, in February of 1985, he was assaulted by a masked attacker who broke his skull and gave him other injuries requiring 80 stitches. Now, he does survive and later goes on to become Premier of British Columbia. Finally, in March of 1985, the court order for surveillance on Parmar comes through. Two investigators are assigned to the case. Neither received any cultural training, instruction in Punjabi, 
or had much, if any, knowledge about Sikhism. Nevertheless, a wiretap is placed on Parmar, as well as physical surveillance. All taped phone conversations are sent to Ottawa, where there was a Punjabi translator. This isn't to say that there weren't thousands of Punjabi speakers in BC. There were. Just none that had managed to pass the rigorous requirements of CSIS. One Punjabi translator for all of Canada meant a serious backlog in understanding the conversations. This manages to improve on June 6, 1984, when a Punjabi translator is finally brought into work in Vancouver. Unfortunately, the backlog remains. And to make matters worse, the lead investigator on the Parmore case, he goes on vacation two days later. He will not return to work until June 23, 1985. June 23, yes, you heard that right, the day of the bombing. We'll return to the Parmar tapes a little later, don't worry. But for now, let's head to Duncan, B.C. So three weeks before the bombing, Parmar takes a trip across the Strait of Georgia, accompanied by an unknown man. Two CSIS agents, Larry Lowe and Lynn McAdams, just managed to make it onto the ferry in the car they'd been using to tail Parmar for the trip. Now, the main reason for sending these two agents to tail Parmar had been to get pictures of him the car they would be using once they made it to Vancouver Island, and of this mysterious accomplice. However, the car the agents were provided with did not have a camera, nor were they provided with one before getting into the car, according to their testimony. Reading this was one of many instances where I wanted to chuck the report away from me. No camera? <laughs> but wait, it gets better. Whilst on the ferry... One of the investigators notes Parmar making a phone call. She scribbles down what she believes the number to be, but notes she might have misheard one of the digits. Upon disembarkation in Nanaimo, the goal is to follow Parmar and Mr. X to the house of Indurjit Singh Rayat, as well as to his auto shop. Now let's pause and talk about Mr. X for a moment, because at this time, it was believed that Mr. X was just Parmar's son. Of course... Only a couple weeks later, it was proved that Parmar's son is actually in school at Vancouver at the time, and no one has ever managed to figure out who Mr. X actually is. Let's head back to Rayat. So Rayat has been added to the list of suspected Baba Kalsar terrorists after multiple phone calls having been made between him and Parmar. In the months leading up to the bombing, Rayat had been asking questions around town about dynamite, explosion caps, and tinkering with many electronics. Not suspicious at all. Rayat, Parmar, and Mr. X head out to the woods outside of Duncan. There, they get out of the car and walk some distance away. McAdams and Lowe follow them a short distance before a loud blast is heard. Lowe is an experienced hunter and believes this to be a shotgun blast. McAdams has never heard a shotgun blast and so takes Lowe's expertise at face value. Now, additionally, the current idea floating around CSIS had been that Babar Khausa were planning an assassination attempt on the current prime minister when he came to visit the U.S., the Indian prime minister, to be clear. So hearing a shotgun blast helped to confirm this theory. Everybody then heads back to their respective cars and into Duncan. Lowe and McAdams check into a motel and make cursory notes. Note here, during the actual commission to the bombing, it's clear that they never expected to have to use these notes for evidence, so they are not particularly detailed. 
While in the motel room, Lo, still not convinced that Mr. X is Parmar's son, calls to ask for an extension so they can figure out who this man is. Cesis agrees. However, by the next morning, the plan has changed and they are recalled back to Vancouver. Presumably the reason for not going after Mr. X? A lack of funding. So there's two major issues here. One is our first unknown player. It's been almost 30 years and we still have no idea who Mr. X is. The second, and far more crucial mistake, is the shotgun blast. On July 2nd, RCMP find remnants of a bomb at the location where Rayat and Parmar had headed out into the woods. With this, it seems almost definite that it was a detonation heard by Lowen McAdams, not a shotgun. The commission would later ask why Lowen McAdams didn't phone police to ask them to stop the Parmar car. If they had... This may have been one more opportunity to stop the bombing before it had occurred. As this is going on, Air India has become aware of threats against their company. On June 1st, Air India releases a telex that is forwarded to RCMP. In it, they describe how they've become aware of a terrorist plot to happen sometime in June, and the plot is to bomb an Air India flight by means of explosives hidden within checked luggage. Yes, that's right. Air India knew about the terrorist plot, and they tried to get help. They asked the RCMP for additional security and help with more stringent X-ray technology. Well, absolutely, you might be thinking. Of course, with such a high-level threat, the RCMP would try to help. And you'd be wrong. The RCMP believed that this telex was a ploy by Air India to get additional security on Canada's dime rather than paying for it themselves. They saw no reason to forward this information to any other airline and basically sat on it, offering no additional help to Air India. Now, to be fair, at the time, it was generally the airline's responsibility to have security and check for terrorist plots. In fact, if Transport Canada was involved at all, it was mostly to stop any hijacking events, which were far more common at the time. Even Transport Canada and aircraft carriers had been pushing for stricter X-ray technology, None would be provided until after the disaster. Making these matters worse, during the commission, James Battleman, who was head of Intelligence Bureau at External Affairs, testified that he had seen a communications security establishment document come across his desk back in 1985 that indicated that Sikh extremists were targeting Flight 182 in particular. While no such document has ever come to light, Battleman is considered to be a credible witness. Even without the CSE document, the Canadian government had more than enough information to do something to protect Air India flights. They did not. As a matter of fact, due to more budgetary concerns, surveillance on Parmar was pulled on June 17th, mere days before the attack. And that brings us to the day of the attack. On the morning of June 22, 1985, the threat level at the Canadian Pacific Air counter at Vancouver International Airport was normal. Different airlines were not yet in the process of sharing information. Now, the agent working the gate that day was having just a normal, regular day, if a little busy. As her line was nearing into the dozens, a man stepped forward presenting his tickets, bought only two days ago, with cash. He was booked on CP Air Flight 060 to Toronto with no problem, 
but the ticket presented showed that he was booked on standby for Air India Flight 182. The agent hands the tickets back to M. Singh. Yes, this was at a time we didn't have to show ID at baggage check, and promptly marks his suitcase with an orange tag. Now, this orange tag means that Mr. Singh will have to grab his luggage at Pearson Airport and transfer it to the Air India desk. This was standard practice for the time. Mr. Singh begins to argue. Obviously, he has a seat booked on Air India, and he does not want to have to transfer the bags. He believes that they should go straight through, particularly since he's booked in business class. The CP Air agent does not have a flight manifest from Air India, and so all she has is the information on her computer. She continues to press to Mr. Singh that, no, it's company policy that he has to pick up the bag. Mr. Singh gets louder, drawing the attention of people behind him in line. It escalates to the point where Mr. Singh yells that he's going to go get his brother to help argue the case. And this is when the agent gives in. She prints a new ticket, allowing the bag to go straight through. Mr. Singh takes his tickets, drops his bag, and vanishes. He does not go to the Canadian Pacific flight and never arrives in Toronto for the Air India one. Many people choose to place blame on this agent's shoulders. She could have escalated this to a supervisor or continued to follow company policy. If you've ever worked retail or know someone who has, I guarantee you a similar story has happened to you. A pushy customer demanding something outrageous. Sometimes it is just easier to give them what they want and have them leave the area. There was no way this agent could have known what was in the bag. And if you watch any documentary about this, you can see the devastation in her eyes. She lives with this guilt. But she was only the first stop. You see, CPR policy was to pull any baggage with missing passengers off of the plane. This did not happen in the case of CPR 060, nor in the case of CPR 003. At some point that morning, you see, another gentleman presented his ticket, this time under the name of L. Singh. His baggage was sent straight through without the need to pick it up in Narita Airport. In fact, this L. Singh was so nondescript, to this day we don't even have a sketch of who he might be. El Singh also did not make his flight. Many people connecting to the Air India flight did, however. One particular story stands out. While waiting for his brother-in-law to arrive for the flight, a man named Ragbir runs into Harmail Singh Johal. Not remember him? Back in 1984, it was Johal who tried to use the information he had about the Air India bomb plot. Now, here he is looking absolutely worried at the sight of Ragbir. Especially since now Ragbir is asking him what he's doing at the Vancouver airport at 7 a.m. When his brother-in-law, Daljeet Grawar, finally arrives, Johal rushes to his side, presenting a hastily scribbled letter and asking Daljeet to give it to his mother in India. This gets Ragbir off his back. But we know that this isn't the only thing Johal says. Whatever was passed between them is not known. After dropping off his luggage, Daljeet headed to the insurance desk, where he proceeded to buy $400,000 worth of flight insurance. This was something he'd never done before. When his wife questioned this decision, he simply said, quote, You might need it for the children's education. Neither Daljeet nor the letter would make it back to India. At Pearson Airport a few hours later, things are running along as best they could. 
There were a few delays with the Air India flight that day. Number one, Flight 182 was carrying a fifth engine. This was one that had malfunctioned a few weeks previously and was headed back to India for repairs. Safely installing the useless engine took an additional two hours. Remember this, it will become important in a little bit. Number two, the crew of Flight 182 were also a little bit delayed. You see, they were halfway to the airport when one of the flight attendants realized they'd left the flight engineer back at the Royal York Hotel. The flight engineer had slipped through his alarm, but was happily waiting for the rest of his crew when the bus returned to pick him up. Number three, the x-ray scanner malfunctions. After getting through approximately 50 to 75% of the baggage of Flight 182, the machine ceases to work. John D'Souza, the Air India security officer, heads down to baggage armed with PD-4s, which are handheld bomb-catching devices for luggage. The RCMP at Pearson Airport had already deemed these PD-4s temperamental and did not believe that they were good enough to detect any explosives. Well, that's fine. Again, you might be thinking, because even if this machine doesn't work, surely there's a bomb-sniffing dog that can take a look, because all airports have those, right? Well, technically, yes. Pearson does have a highly trained bomb-sniffing dog. Except, where is he and his handler on this day in June? when both the RCMP and Air India know that there's a plot to put a bomb on an Air India plane, and the only airports Air India flies out of in Canada are Pearson and Montreal's Mirabel? Well, they're in Vancouver. Every bomb-sniffing dog in Canada was in Vancouver on that day for additional training, leaving many airports without any backup. Now, the handler of the Pearson bomb dog went on later to say that had he been there, it would have taken him 20 minutes to go through the remaining luggage to detect for explosives. 20 minutes. When the plane was already going to be delayed by a couple of hours. But Air India is very strict about delays, and we'll see this once the flight lands in Mirabel. You know what, let's head back to the baggage handlers for a moment, who have now been shown a sound the PD-4 makes after encountering a lit match. It beeps. D'Souza then hands the rest of the machines out and prepares to board Flight 181 to check on things in Montreal. That's all the training they get on these new machines. One of the baggage handlers hears a faint whistle as he passes a maroon vinyl bag. He does this again, and the whistle happens again. So he brings a fellow handler over to check. Happens for the other. Except they're, they're confused because the machine beeped when D'Souza did a lit match. They show their supervisor who shrugs at them. They shrug as well and allow the bag to head onto the plane. Whether or not this was the bag is subject to debate. What is not subject to debate, however, is that Mr. Singh's bag, according to Air India policies, should have been pulled from the flight Regardless, it was clearly stated that any baggage belonging to no-shows would not be loaded onto the plane. Except, Air India didn't know about Mr. Singh, because the flight manifest from CP Air 060 never made it into their hands. Back at the Air India counter, Park Shpedi is helping the rest of his family load their luggage at the check-in counter at Pearson and says goodbye as they head to security and the gate beyond. He spots a friend in the line and goes to chat with him. 
and as they're speaking, Betty notices that there's a British Airway flight heading to India at about the same time as the Air India one. In the case of the British Airways flight, however, that line is packed with Sikhs. The Air India line, not so much. He comments about this to his friend, who looks surprised at Betty. Well, yes, he says. The Sikhs have been warned not to fly Air India. There's a risk of some sort of attack. Beatty feels an overwhelming sense of panic take over him. He rushes to try and get to his family to switch them to the British Airways flight. Security does not let him through. Beatty thinks of this every day. After a nearly two-hour delay, Air India Flight 181, and it's 181 for right now because they have to travel from Pearson to Mirabel, but it'll be 182 once it takes off in Montreal. But finally, it's prepared for takeoff, heading to Montreal to pick up the last passengers. Things in Montreal are going mostly smoothly. Their x-ray machine is still working, and three bags have been deemed suspicious. They are put to the side, awaiting Air India security officer John D'Souza and RCMP. To be completely safe with these suspicious bags, they are left unattended on the floor near the x-ray machine. As 181 lands, John D'Souza is headed down to the baggage area, having heard about these three mysterious bags. According to a baggage handler at the time, D'Souza was far more concerned about the flight departing on time than he was about the baggage. In fact, despite knowing about the suspect bags, he gives the go-ahead to load the passengers onto the plane. The decision is made to call in the backup bomb sniffer dog, which, yes, Montreal is one of the few that does have a backup dog. Will they have the dog search all of the bags, as would be prudent? No, the dog will come to sniff the three suspect bags that are not allowed on board. So why was D'Souza so focused on departing on time? Well, Air Indian management were being very strict about it. Every hour, the Kanishka, which is what the plane was known as, was delayed at an airport. It cost the company $18,000, which is nearly $45,000 today. Now, additionally, the Air India station manager in 1985 happened to be a man named Ashwani Sarwal, who on this day was away on vacation. In his absence, it was unclear to most Air India management employees just who was in charge. Deciding to leave the three suspect bags behind, D'Souza gets the all clear. The passengers are loaded, the plane has been cross-checked, and at 10.13 p.m., Flight 182 departs Montreal's Mirabel Airport. As the plane leaves, D'Souza decides, yeah, he should probably inform the RCMP about the baggage issues. So he calls Mirabel's security to let them know about the suspicious bags. Then he calls Pearson security to let them know about the faulty x-ray machines. Yes, both flights had taken off without the RCMP knowing about the issues. And to say that the bomb-sniffing dog and handler were confused when they arrived at Mirabel is an understatement. They were given to understand that they would be checking the whole flight's baggage, except that the flight had already departed. Now, to make matters even worse, the three bags that had been deemed suspicious weren't actually suspicious at all. The most dangerous thing that was found? A hair dryer. June 23rd, 3.14pm at Narita Airport. 
two baggage handlers perish after a bomb detonates inside of a piece of baggage off of the CP Air 003 flight. Four others are injured. The luggage was supposed to have made it onto Air India Flight 301 to Bangkok. The terrorists had planned to have both bombs explode at the same time. They forgot to factor in that Japan does not observe daylight savings time. Because this explosion happened on land, much of the evidence for the commission actually came from it. But at 7.14 a.m. Greenwich Mean Time, the explosive on board Air India Flight 182 detonates, killing everyone aboard. Around the world, people are getting the devastating news that their loved ones are lost. For those who had boarded the flight in Montreal, they had seen them off only six hours ago. Information about the crash was slow to come in. In trying to relay information, the highly stressed Shannon Airport air traffic control mistakenly gave the altitude of the plane as 3,100 feet rather than 1,000. For the people on board the boats who sprang into action, they firmly believed that they were on the way to the rescue site of a small plane. Nothing could have prepared them for what they found. After two days of searching, 131 bodies had been recovered from the sea and brought to Cork, Ireland for identification. Heartbroken families were flying in from Canada and India to come and see if their loved ones had been found. Most were still clinging to the hope that they might find their loved ones alive. The Indian Consul General in Vancouver, a man named Jagdish Sharma, had been on vacation in India at the time of the crash. In a twist of fate, his family had originally been scheduled on Flight 182 to come and visit, but one of them had gotten sick and the flights had been postponed. Sharma hopped on one of the first flights to Heathrow to help any family members of the lost that he could, and many would go on to say that he was a source of great comfort to them in that time. But perhaps the greatest source of comfort during this terrible time came from the people of Cork and of Ireland. Many locals welcomed family members into their homes. A car service was set up to ferry people to the hospital. The church was opened to be a non-denominal place of worship for all those who were seeking spiritual comfort at the time. Many families of the victims continue to maintain deep friendships with those that they met during those turbulent days. The Irish welcomed them and mourned with them. This felt like their tragedy, too. Notably silent from the mourning was Canada. Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, upon hearing of the tragedy, drafted a letter to the Prime Minister of India, offering his condolences. Later, he would go on to give the following statement. Quote, I would like to convey my deepest personal condolences and those of the Canadian government to all members of the bereaved families on the occasion of the terrible loss of Air India Flight 182. At no point did Mulroney go on national television, or the radio, or demand an immediate inquiry. There were no church services held, no public spaces allowed for mourning. Most of the people on board Flight 182 were Canadian citizens. To date, it remains the largest terrorist attack against Canadian citizens. But because the majority were of Indian heritage, the question of who is considered Canadian got thrown around a lot. If this had been an Air Canada flight headed to Paris, would the result from the government have been different? 
To make matters worse, Canada sent three inexperienced diplomats to help with the situation in Ireland. All were junior members who had little idea of what to do. Most of the families were unaware that anybody from Canada had even shown up in Ireland. And lots of these were the same people who, upon heading to Heathrow before catching the flight to Ireland, were forced to stand outside in the pouring rain, as the Hotel Air India had provided for them in London, had a bomb threat that needed to be investigated. Back in Canada, the message coming from the upper echelons of power was very clear. Under no circumstances was anyone to mention the word bombing. According to them, the reason that the Kanishka was now in pieces 6,000 meters below the sea was an accident. Furthermore, it was decided that any family member seeking answers was to be brushed off. And to be clear, it only took a little bit of digging to figure out that many organizations had made poor decisions that led to this disaster. Rather than admit that the government, CSIS, and RCMP were aware of the threat, a screen of silence went down. A few years later, when the families finally got together to make a claim against the government, the government decided to settle with the families for a pittance. They knew that if they had to go to court, all the information they had about how they might have been able to stop the disaster before it happened would come out. Many families who had lost their breadwinners in the disaster were now falling into serious financial trouble. The small amount given to them from the settlement did little to ease their burdens. Some took to requesting additional financial assistance from the government. The advice they received in return? Quote, Seek help from the welfare system. It's absolutely outrageous. And as the government is fighting with the families, the RCMP and CSIS are now fighting over who should take more of the blame for not stopping the bombing. Many years of infighting and poor decision-making beleaguered any sense of justice the victims were entitled to. CSIS was forced to hand over some of their sources to the RCMP, who then began a campaign of terror upon them. One, named Mrs. D in the commission, was forced to go into witness protection months before she had to, because the RCMP decided to name her in an affidavit. Another, named Mrs. E, had valuable information about being asked to borrow her car to take some luggage to the airport. When the RCMP finally approached her, in public, in 1997, they forced her to come to the station and refused to give her her usual liaison. Fearing for her safety, Mrs. E pleaded memory loss every time she was put on the stand or asked any question afterwards. Other sources who had asked CSIS not to testify were instead called up to testify. Others were publicly brought to the RCMP only to have officers dismiss their information as irrelevant to the inquiry. Another informant, Tara Singh Hayer, who was an important publisher in the Sikh community, ended up murdered for naming suspects and giving information to the authorities. To date, even though multiple charges have been brought against people considered to be key players in the bombing, only one has ever faced charges. Indurjit Singh Rayat was put in prison on charges related to building the bomb. He was released to a halfway house in 2016. Most of the others either went into hiding or were found murdered, Parmar included. Others were put on trial between 2003 and 2004, 
but they were acquitted due to lack of evidence. It is unlikely that true justice will ever be found for the victims. There are some things that have improved over the years. In 2005, Prime Minister Paul Martin, along with other high-level politicians in Canada, made their way to Ireland to mourn with the victims at the 20th anniversary. A year later, Prime Minister Stephen Harper would order a public inquiry into the disaster, an unpopular move at the time. The inquiry, led by former Supreme Court Justice John Major, concluded in 2010. It found that a, quote, cascading series of errors allowed the tragedy to unfold. This finding will help the victims' families with more monetary compensation and acknowledgement of yet more truths about the disaster. There are monuments to visit across Canada. In Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver, you can go and pay your respects. The 331 souls that lost their lives because of this tragedy didn't do anything to deserve this. Most were excited to see family members, loved ones, and friends after an extended period in their new home of Canada. So hug your own loved ones a little tighter before they fly on their next trip. And on June 23rd, recognize and remember why our flags fly at half-mast. May this disaster never be forgotten. I'm Rachel Stewart, and this has been Canadian Disasters, True North Strong and Destructive.